Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Aging water infrastructure has left some families in Appalachia with water they can't use, if they have it at all. If there has been mornings I can't take a shower. It makes you mad. Frustrated, angry, worried. You know, if it's that color today, do I want to get in it tomorrow? We'll learn about a sewer system in southern West Virginia that leaves some families panicking when it starts to rain. I know that we live in a poor state and there's not funding or whatever, but this just doesn't seem fair that we're having to deal with this. And we'll hear about some possible solutions. So it is different than electricity. It is different than cable. I mean, water is a human right. They should have their water. It's an issue that's been happening for decades. We have more on the failing infrastructure in central Appalachia this week, Inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. This month is the fifth anniversary of the Elk River chemical spill that left 300,000 people in central West Virginia without drinking water for more than a week. It was a stressful time for a lot of folks and for businesses that were forced to shut down in the capital city. Lots of people still don't trust their water. But for many families in more rural parts of the region, like southern West Virginia and eastern Kentucky, the absence of clean, reliable drinking water is part of daily life, and has been for, well, as long as I can remember. Here's 17-year-old Blaine Taylor from Martin County, Kentucky. And, you know, I just had a long, hard day, you know, working out and stuff with the Marines. So I thought to myself, I'm going to go in there and take a bath. And I turned on my shower and, you know, I'm letting the water heat up, and I look down to the bottom of the shower floor, and I see little, like, pebbles and all kinds of stuff that looked like either coal dust or dirt or something other that was inside of our water just sitting there at the drain of my shower. And I turned off the water, and I went in there, and I got my dad, and my dad was like, well, Blaine, you're just not going to take a shower tonight, you know, you're, you're going to have to get bottles of water and hope for the best. And uh, it's pretty rough whenever, you know, a man has to go and get multiple I had to use a case of water last night just to get enough water in my bathtub just to get myself cleaned up for today at school. We'll hear more from Blaine later in the show. As we reported in 2015, water districts in central Appalachia struggle to perform routine maintenance which leads to quality and reliability problems for customers. Sometimes districts are understaffed and underfunded. The repairs they do make are often inadequate and fail to address the long-term problems of water loss and crumbling service lines. And it's not just water systems suffering from aging infrastructure. Some families live with inadequate sewer systems, too, that present health risks and can make simple things like doing laundry and flushing the toilet a challenge. Here's Amy Swan, executive director of the West Virginia arm of the National Rural Water Association. It's, It's a difficult problem. And it is a difficult problem from many angles. You have these areas. They're small. They're isolated. I I don't really feel like they necessarily have that voice. West Virginia Public Broadcasting reporter Molly Bourne, Katie Coyne from the Charleston Gazette-Mail, and Will Wright from the Lexington Herald-Leader spent part of last year looking into this issue. The project was called Stirring the Waters, and it was part of the Report for America Fellowship program, whose goal is to put more local reporters in areas that need them. As part of the report, we'll take a trip to Gary in McDowell County, West Virginia, where Katie Coyne and Molly Bourne visited the kitchen of Tina and Chris Coleman. Hey there, Molly here. So this fall, Katie Coyne from the Gazette Mail and I went to Gary 
and talked with the Coleman family. Gary is this little town off the Tug Fork River, less than 1,000 people, not far from Welch, the government center of McDowell County. Katie found the Colemans while she was combing through complaints filed to the State Public Service Commission. That's the nexus for all public service-related complaints in West Virginia. If the Colemans' water comes out at all, it's blue, or green, or deep red, or brown, or white. They spend roughly $200 every month on bottled water and filters for their faucets. That's on top of their $150 monthly water and sewage bill. Chris Coleman is holding up a filter the family put in about two weeks ago. It's stained a brownish red. It's hooked up to the main water line going into their house. And this water, this earthy, muddy water, is what comes through the line before it reaches the filter. You might hear a few camera clicks in the background. We brought a photographer with us. Here's Tina Coleman. Um, before he put this filter in, we actually kept the laundry here. Because it would, I wish I actually had kept some of the clothes, but I threw them away. We threw away thousands of dollars worth of clothes. Anything that was not black or dark gray, blue jeans, we couldn't, you couldn't use it. I mean, because it would put big black spots. And no matter what you did, it would not come out. Um, this was my dad's home, my mom's home. You know, I grew up here. My children were born here. Um, they hate me because I moved them here. I mean, they really do. Could you live like this? The Colemans spend most of their time at Tina's Flowers and Gifts, a store Tina Coleman opened in Welch in 2011. There, she says, the water is good. There has been mornings I can't take a shower. It makes you mad. Frustrated, angry, worried. You know, if it's that color today, do I want to get in it tomorrow? The Colemans' 19-year-old son and 18-year-old daughter live with them. Here's Sierra Coleman. One time we didn't have the filter. I had ran a bath full of water and it was dirt. Like it wasn't just yeah, like the color, it was literally mud. It, it turns your fingernails gray. And I know it's the water because when I lived in Bluefield, <coughs> um, my nails went right back to normal color. My hair stopped falling out, everything. That's how I knew it was the water. And I moved back and it started all over again. And here's Sierra's son, Keaton. He lives here too. He was nine months last fall. <laughs> Um, we do everything with him with bottled water. Everything. We do. He, nothing, this water never comes in contact with him except for his laundry. Because it scares me. You don't know what, what's, what is that. He has a baby bathtub and he gets bathed in bottled water. The Coleman's and their neighbors use a water system that pretty much relies on the same pipes donated to the city nearly 50 years ago. Residents throughout parts of the central Appalachian coal fields know this experience all too well. Much of West Virginia's water piping was late in the early 20th century. That's true of most of the country. Most systems haven't had many upgrades, even if they desperately need them. In many areas, coal companies owned the company towns where miners lived. They also operated the water systems. When coal production slowed and the companies and their engineers left, the systems ended up in the hands of residents who didn't have the resources to maintain them for very long. Here's Amy Swan again from the West Virginia Rural Water Association. What's the shortest point, you know, distance between point A and point B? Well, that's where we're running the line. And you saw... Uh, construction techniques that could have been better. And you saw 
a customer base that just could not afford replacement cost. And here's Molly again with Katie Coyne from the Charleston Gazette-Mail. Some folks in Wyoming County had the foresight to get funding. In the 70s, communities where coal companies left approached the state for money to create a new public service district just to serve that coal camp. But then, by the time they finished, they had 22 public service districts that were all tiny and not really well-maintained. So today, nine community water systems have been under boil water advisories for longer than five years, all in southern West Virginia. Gary, where the Coleman's live, sees intermittent boil water advisories. A boil water advisory doesn't always mean the water is unsafe to drink. The reasons cited are failure to monitor the drinking water, inadequate disinfection of the drinking water, and lack of a proper system operator. One town not far from Gary has been under a continuous boil water notice since May of 2002. Yeah, 16 years. West Virginia is losing people. Departments are already strapped for cash. Swan mentioned Whitesville, a town in Boone County. You have nobody left to spread those costs over. I mean, I know Whitesville. And he said, you know, we, we had 1,000 customers, and now we have 500. And they had not put in, the board there had not put in for a rate increase for, I don't know, I think almost 15 years, he said, 13, 14, 15 years. Grants are the most sought-after funding source for water projects, but that funding has shrunk. Low-interest loans can bury small water systems in debt. So there's a constellation of problems here. You have people leaving a region, fewer people with the skills to do maintenance, and less money to make improvements to systems. And systems are trying to cobble together resources. So how do you deal with all that? Some places are joining forces. The McDowell County PSD has scooped up smaller systems in the region at 16 and counting. Some people have been hesitant about that. They don't want to lose their sense of community. And maybe they're worried about rates going up. Sometimes things get political. But it might not be a problem that can be fixed by throwing money at it. Here's Swan again. There are some that, you know, no matter what you pour into them, they're just not, they're not going to be more than what they are. You take a poor county with fewer resources and more demands on those scarce resources. It just takes a long time. I had, I had somebody ask me one time, does this bother you? Of course it bothers me. In my heart, I'm a problem solver, and I can't get this one solved in any way that makes sense or makes me happy. In Gary, Tina Coleman's frustration and concerns for her family's well-being have led her to look for a new home, away from the one she longed to return to so many years ago. I'm, I'm leaving Gary as soon as I find the house. I'm out of here. You know, would you want to live here? Nobody does. That was Molly Bourne and Katie Coyne discussing the problems in southern West Virginia. All but one of those nine systems that Katie mentioned, the ones that have been under long-term boil water advisories, have been serious violators with the Federal Environmental Protection Agency for the past 12 quarters. Regular inspections at these systems are still few and far between. The only real source of revenue for community water systems is collecting bills from customers. That's unlikely to generate anywhere near enough money, considering how many people continue to move out of these areas, and rate hikes come at a cost too. 
West Virginia would need $17 billion to connect hundreds of systems across the state to centralized utility services, both water and sewer. That's according to the West Virginia Infrastructure and Jobs Development Council. They're responsible for approving and overseeing infrastructure projects in the state. As Katie noted, that's more than the entire 2018 state budget. In all, the council approved 144 proposed sewage and water projects in West Virginia at a total of nearly $700 million. By the end of 2017, only $8.5 million were secured for the projects, just over 1% of the necessary funds. But there are bright spots. Amy Swan says the Eastern Wyoming County Public Service District, for instance, has been able to leverage abandoned mine lands grant money and keep rates pretty affordable while giving people better service. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. On today's show, we're sharing developments about the water infrastructure challenges in central Appalachia. As some of us know, living without consistent clean water is a part of daily life in part of central Appalachia, especially in the coal fields. Here's 17-year-old Blaine Taylor from Martin County, Kentucky. He goes to school in the next county, and he won't drink the water there either. No, I don't even drink school's water because of the way Martin County's water has done me my whole life, you know. I, was, I even went up to Ohio with my mom for about four or five months, and I was still yet cautious about drinking tap water from Ohio because, well, Martin County's just like, their water's got me to the point to where I won't even use the faucet or nothing. I'll just be like, hey, I'm going to get a bottle of water, you know, boil, boil this or boil that, you know. I won't, I won't use it, you know. It's just, it's rough. Not very many kids were, well, really, we're like the only group of kids in America, I mean, I, there's more like Flint, Michigan and stuff like that that have this water crisis, you know, it just, there's no need in it. Because Flint, Michigan, they're going through the, not as bad probably, I don't know if it's worse or not, but I know they're going through a water crisis too, and it's just, you know, having water, it needs to be fixed, you know. It's, it, you can't live a life without water. It's, they even have water in the Bible, so it's, that's how, it's just important. Your body's made up of water. So rather than drink what comes out of their taps, sometimes folks drink bottled water, like Blaine just described. And to prepare for the next possible outage, people sometimes collect rainwater in buckets or drive for miles to natural springs on the sides of highways and on back roads to fill up tanks for their cisterns or jugs for cooking. Molly Bourne rode along with Martin County, Kentucky resident Barbie Ann Maynard one afternoon as she collected water with her kids. Like many people in Martin County, Kentucky, Barbie Ann Maynard says she can't drink her water. She says there's sometimes sediment in it, or there are long periods where she doesn't have it at all. One day last fall, we meet off the side of the highway by the railroad tracks, and I hop in her blue minivan to ride along for her weekly trip to the mountain spring along the highway near the Mingo-Logan County line in southern West Virginia. And I have two garbage bags of jugs that I need to refill, and that's about a week's supply of water for my family. 
It's for cooking, it's for do, making coffee, and making tea. Maynard is 40 years old. She's often wearing a University of Kentucky shirt of some kind. And she's got a lot of Eastern Kentucky pride. But she's been a vocal critic of her troubled water district. She's helped to distribute water to people who need it. And she's a member of the Martin County Water Warriors, a group of citizens concerned about the ongoing water problems. This place we're going to, it's about 45 minutes from her house, one way. I've got pictures of me with the girls when they were just toddlers, and they were holding their hand out and playing in the water and laughing and splatting as I was filling my jugs up. I do this in rain. I do this in snow. I mean, it's a very cold day today. And here we are at the spring, and there's a line. Well, there's one other family filling up. It's freezing out here, enough to chap your hands and lips. You can hear the cars speeding by on Route 119, the four-lane highway connecting Charleston, the capital, to southern West Virginia. What is water in this grass? You wouldn't be you without random historical facts. Take the lid! The spring is a single pipe coming out of the mountain. Nearby, there's a headstone that reads, Pool of Bethesda Holy Ground. It's named for a biblical source of water considered to have healing effects. No! No! It is always an adventure when we come. Maynard has been doing this for 18 years. As they fill up the two trash bags worth of water jugs, her kids and their friend log them one at a time over to the van and place them on the floor. Her son, Nolan Sloan, is a senior in high school, and he can't wait to get out of the region. The way he talks about it, it makes you realize this is something kids might carry with them their entire lives, whether they move away or not. I'm 17. I just don't want to have to worry about what water I drink. Like, that's awful here. I'm going to die. It's one of the worst problems you can have, and I've faced it my entire life. Like it just—it it sucks, and it makes it really hard because, like, where I go to school in a different, in a different county, uh, I kind of like I'm still like even scared to like wash my hands in the bathroom. Nolan says he carries hand sanitizer in his book bag. He simply doesn't trust public water. And uh, like even like when people are like, oh, you know, you can just get a drink out of the water fountain. Like it, it makes me like nauseous to think about it. And I don't even go to school in the same county, so like I shouldn't. It's just like I've been like groomed, you know, like to think, don't touch the water. And uh, yeah, that's going to have like everlasting impact on me. Soon they're pulling back on the highway, knowing they'll be back next week. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Molly Bourne. Blaine Taylor, the Martin County teen that you heard from earlier, wrote a research paper about water in English class last fall. Here's Blaine reading some of what he wrote. It was on page four. I put that the pe- that me and the people in Martin County have have, the, have all dealt with this issue for our whole lives, and I feel pretty disgusting whenever I had to go to the shower. And I take a shower, and my water smells and looks like either alcohol or dirt. And it, it just, it's disgusting having to, take a pe- having to take a shower, and it's looking like the stuff that comes, my bodily fluids, you know, my urine. 
and <clears throat> then I said that it would it would be a little bit nicer on me and walking around outside with a long without a long sleeve shirt on or something other because my upper arms didn't have either a rash or a swollen on them and it'd be even better if a person could go outside and have fun play football knowing that he can come back up to his house and take a shower that night and be ready for school in the next morning and not have to go all the way over to Pike County just to take a shower at one of his family members' house. And then I said, my dad, me and my dad, we've dealt with this since we moved up here ever since I, ever since I was born. And my dad feels the same way as I do. He hates it. He, he used to be a coal miner for so many years long, approximately 14 to 15 plus even longer and uh he's had to deal with it and he's came home solid black and have to wake up the next morning with cold dust on him solid black just to go to work and uh he he, ha he hated it but it was what he had to do because there was times that he'd come home and not have water or there was times that he'd come home and couldn't take a bath because of the water would would cause a rash and he'd already have one that's really bad on him from the other from the other night of taking a shower in the water Again, that's Blaine Taylor, who lives in Martin County, Kentucky, the county that made local and national headlines in 2018 when residents went days without water. Since then, the district has been under intense scrutiny from state regulators, who called it the worst water district in the state. Early last year, officials from the water district said it was only a couple weeks away from total financial collapse. Will Wright covers eastern Kentucky for the Lexington Herald-Leader. Molly Bourne interviewed him about his reporting. Well, Martin County seems to be the poster child for bad water in Kentucky. Why is that? Well, Martin County has had a lot of financial and operational problems with their water district for years now. And state regulators have been looking into this for years. But things really came to a head in January 2018 when there was a massive water outage that left people without water for days at a time. Some people went without water for more than a week. And that outage came at the same time that the water district asked for a 50% rate increase. So those two things coupled together, as well as their financial situation becoming really dire and that becoming more obvious to people, I think that combination all sort of brewed into this big story. So to give you an idea of what people on the ground have been dealing with, uh, here's, here's one family that I interviewed, Jessica and Tim Taylor. Our nine-year-old will say, hey, Dad, it's supposed to rain. Should we set the buckets out? <laughs> and that's so, what you do. I mean, it's pretty bad. Your kids have to pay attention to the news, too, to, to know if they're going to be able to wash their hands. They shouldn't have to go through this like this. No. Nobody should. Not not just ours, but no kid or no no person. Wow, that that's intense. Martin County is dealing with some astronomical water loss rates. What is a water loss rate, and why does it matter? A water loss rate is how much of the water that a water district produces from the treatment plant actually makes it into people's homes. So water can be lost through leaking lines or faulty meters, and that matters because it costs money to produce and to clean water. So uh, when you have a district like Martin County that loses 70% of the water it produces, 
uh, before they can actually get it to customers to be billed, that's a huge, huge financial loss. So water loss rates are also indicative of other problems, like if there are a lot of line leaks, then groundwater and sediment can enter into the pipes. So that can affect people's quality of water. Okay, so you outlined several possible solutions to some of the problems in eastern Kentucky. Can you give me some examples? Sure. So water districts over the years have failed to do regular rate studies to see how much do we need to raise rates to be able to fund our operations and provide good water to people. So when they don't do that and don't raise rates gradually over time, they fall way behind. But raising rates, it it comes at a cost. There are a lot of people in eastern Kentucky who live on fixed incomes, and water district officials know that, and they know that even a $20 increase can really affect people's lives. Uh, Here's Jimmy Don Kerr. He chairs the Martin County Water Board. I know who I'm hurting, and it's hard. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, and I don't take it lightly. I mean, I, I lose sleep over it. I think about it constantly. Is there something else we can do other than raise rates? But nobody is going to come in here and save us. Another thing is that the Public Service Commission, which regulates many water districts in Kentucky, they've seen a substantial decrease in their staff and their budget over the last 10 years. They say that they also lack the authority in some cases to take the necessary steps, like implementing new management for failing water districts, to prevent things like what we're seeing in Martin County right now. One of the ways that districts can fix a lot of these problems is through grants and through low-interest low loans uh, through programs like the Abandoned Mindlands Fund. But in Martin County, officials have said that that money can't be used for the things that they need most, like repairing those leaking service lines. Uh, there have been a lot of calls to allow districts to use that money for what they say they need most and not just for projects that the AML Fund says it needs for economic development. Uh, Jimmy Donker, who we just heard from, he actually drinks his water, right? That That's really interesting. Yeah, he does. Um, not everybody in Martin County thinks that the water's bad. It's a really divisive issue, actually. And while there are some people like Barbie Ann that have been calling for more accountability on part of the water district, I've also heard from a lot of people who think that the negative attention that this news about their water district uh, brings is is bad for the county. I interviewed one water district official in Harlan County, and she drinks the water too. And she told me that there's just been a long-standing distrust of city water in eastern Kentucky. And yeah, it is interesting how some people have told these horror stories about their water, and then you talk to other people, and they seem to be getting getting along fine. Hmm, that's interesting. So how has this affected economic development in the region? Well, Jimmy Don Kerr works in real estate, and he told me that it's been hard to sell homes in Martin County because, you know, if someone's looking to move, the first thing they're going to see about Martin County is that the water's bad. And who's going to want to move somewhere where they think you can't rely on one of the basic necessities of life? Uh, The Taylors also said that most of their kids won't stay in Martin County when they grow up because there's just not a whole, there's not a lot for them there. They said that if there was a decent water system, maybe the county would have a better chance to bring jobs to an area that really needs them. And how have officials responded to this since your stories have come out? Most officials in eastern Kentucky recognize that the water infrastructure is a big problem and that it needs to be fixed. Uh, We talked about this earlier, but everybody here is trying to figure out how do we move this region forward economically. 
and a failing water system is not a good place to start. Uh, County executives might want to take a harder look at their water districts and their financial future. And some state representatives have called for increasing funding for the Public Service Commission, and they've also called for stricter regulations. Other state reps I've talked to, they've told me that they're considering filing a bill uh, that's similar to one that passed in California, and it designates water as a human right. So they're hoping that if they pass that, it will encourage more accountability on these water districts. And there was some movement from the state attorney general's office recently, right? The state attorney general office opened an investigation a couple months ago into the Martin County Water District and announced recently that they, uh, they're supporting putting the district into receivership, which would basically take control away from the water district and put it into an outside utility. Your stories attracted the attention of an up-and-coming country star as well, right? Yes, Tyler Childers, who is from Eastern Kentucky, came to Martin County and delivered 500 cases of water there. Uh, he had heard about the water issues there, and you know, because he's from Eastern Kentucky, I think he had known about them for a long time. And he decided he wanted to come down and help out, so he delivered 500 cases of water and also played a couple songs in Martin County recently. And actually, his fans, when he announced it, really jumped on the opportunity and ended up donating, I think, another 800 cases in addition to his 500. So that's a big deal for Martin County when they're preparing for the winter, when pipes might freeze. Uh, they're worried that, you know, that there will be another long outage and they're trying to stockpile bottles. That's awesome. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Molly. We're going to take a short break. We'll have more about the aging infrastructure challenges in central Appalachia from the Stirring the Waters project right after this. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. This is Inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. On this episode, we're exploring communities in central Appalachia that are dealing with aging water and sewer infrastructure. The question that's always difficult to answer is, how does this impact the health of local residents? Some public service districts repeatedly violate drinking water standards by distributing water that exceeds levels of certain chemical compounds that could pose a health risk to some customers, or because they don't have the resources to monitor water safety. Joanna Bailey is a family doctor who sees patients in McDowell and Wyoming County, two rural counties in southern West Virginia, that struggle with crumbling water infrastructure. And she says patients' concerns about water are a near-daily part of her practice. And as a result, Bailey worries that families don't consider water to be a staple of their diet, that they're chronically dehydrated. She asks parents about drinking water during well-child visits or checkups. When I mention to the parent, I want to make sure that your child is getting drinking water that has fluoride in it, I say, do you drink your 
tap water. Often they'll say, oh, we can't drink your tap water. Um, or we don't have city water, or I don't trust the tap water. She's in the early stages of a research project to determine whether people are more likely to drink sugary drinks that can lead to health problems because they don't trust their water. Bailey herself doesn't drink her tap water without a filter. There's a lot of fecal material that ends up in the Guyandot River from straight pipes, pipes that dump untreated sewer water directly into rivers. Straight pipes have been illegal for years, but many still exist in communities not connected to central sewage systems. Many homes simply don't have the land around them to dig for a septic tank because the homes are so close together or next to a hillside. And septic tanks can cost thousands to install. The Guyandot is the water supply for Pineville, where Bailey lives, and dozens of other towns in the region. There's a chemical reaction that can happen between the chlorine and the fecal material that can produce carcinogens. According to the West Virginia Infrastructure and Jobs Development Council, more than half of structures in the state are not connected to central sewage systems. Instead, they use septic tanks or a makeshift system. Bailey is also concerned about untested mountain springs and what the water might pass through before it ever makes it out of the pipe. She noticed a lot of her patients talking about visiting one spring that's on mine property in Mariana, a community in Wyoming County. I think with city water, it's the devil that you know, right? Um, They're required to test that water. They're required to know what's in it. They're required to tell you what's in it. Nobody is testing the water that is running out of the mountain in Mariana. Nobody is testing the water that's running out of the mountain. Hopefully, it's nice rainwater that's fallen on the mountain and percolated through the soil, and it's an underground stream that is running out of the mountain, and it's well-filtered and safe. Apart from her practice, she's involved in a lawsuit against her city water provider, Pineville Municipal Water. One of her neighbors says that pollutants in the water led to his cancer, and the Bailey family says their health was at risk, too. It all stems from a letter from the water provider sent to customers in June. It warned residents that the water provider failed to meet required reporting documents and that the water tested positive for certain chemical compounds that can be harmful if consumed over a long period of time. The Baileys and their neighbor are hoping their lawsuit will result in the creation of a medical monitoring trust fund that customers could tap into for future medical tests related to the water problems in the letter. As we've mentioned on this show, sometimes communities don't have the resources to maintain aging systems. The responsibility of maintaining records, filing reports, performing tests, and even digging ditches and fixing water lines can fall on a single or just a few workers. There simply aren't enough water operators to keep up with the work. To find out more about the job in rural coal communities, I met up with an experienced water operator in Wyoming County a couple years ago. Well, my first name's Charles, last name's Parker. Everybody calls me Pat. That's my middle name, Patrick. I'm just a uh, part-time operator at Oceana, a class four operator, and uh, I just uh, work weekends whenever they need me. Other than that, I'm, I have no title or anything. The town of Oceana in Wyoming County pays Pat to work on the weekends as a part-time water operator. Pat works full-time as a sales representative for Control Equipment Company, a water and wastewater supplies company based in Salem, Virginia. While he says he doesn't have a title in the community, some folks refer to Pat as the grandfather of water systems in the region. A Class 4 water operator is the most experienced of operators. Pat explains that with each class, you have to take a test and complete 2,000 hours on the job. It takes quite a bit of uh, time and work. It's an underappreciated job because you only hear when people are mad. 
Like his father, uncles, and much of his family, Pat started out working in an underground mine in the region. It didn't take him long to decide he didn't want to be a coal miner. Pat went to college and graduated in 1982 with a biology degree. Then Pat moved back to his hometown of Pineville so he could take care of his parents. He got the job of town manager, and along with that came the responsibilities of handling the town's water system. He struggled to learn the ropes. The guy I worked under made no effort at all to teach me anything. I had to learn it the hard way. During his time in the field, residents would often approach him for help with their water problems, and he gained experience accepting as many requests for help as he could, working with several different types of water systems across the region. Sometimes they would hire me a couple hundred dollars a month to sign their paperwork or something like that. It wasn't always volunteer, but I did volunteer a lot of time. But it would be on my time, in the evenings or on weekends or whenever I could help out, I would. If you meet operators, majority of the operators you meet are like that. They'll help other operators out, other systems out. It's almost a, a brotherhood, you know. Still, Pat doesn't love everything about his part-time job because it's not really part-time. He says a water operator has to be dedicated because the job also comes with a lot of long hours. And you've got to be thick-skinned because you're going to have people out there while you're trying to fix their water complaining and, you know, just uh, being rude. (laughs) I've heard some awful bad language out trying to fix leaks at night and stuff, you know, from people. One of the worst parts of the job, he says, is meter service, especially when you have to do cutoff services. We had a uh, system I was working in, and a a guy didn't pay his water bill, and we pulled his meter. It just so happened the meter box was sitting in his yard, and me and the guy I worked with, pulled the lid off the meter box, and here's another water meter. What he had done was went to a house that had just been left and stole their water meter and put it in his. While he's down there trying to take that meter out, I heard a shotgun cock. You know how, you know, a pump shotgun has a distinctive sound. I looked around, and the lady was standing on her porch above us. She said, get out of my yard. We said, yes, (laughs) ma'am. And then I went and called a deputy, And deputy went with me, and we pulled the meter. But, yeah, she, when I heard that shotgun cock, chills went down my back because I had my back to her, and Mike was down in the hole. And I ended up having to take her husband to magistrate court, and they eventually paid the bill. You know, they, we didn't do anything to them for stealing the meter. They just, we just wanted our money. Did they have low income? Was there, did they have jobs, or was it, did you know that much? The husband had wrecked his car. And I think he was off uh, because of the car wreck. But uh, they, they were probably average income for the community. You know, had a nice, they lived in a double wide, and it was nice, had a nice big piece of property. And so they, uh, you know, they just got in a bind, and instead of working with the water company, they just ignored them. Even though he sees the value of using old coal mines for water sources, Pat's a native of southern West Virginia, and he's aware of the legacy left behind by coal companies. My primary concern was the quality of the water going to my customers. I butted heads with board members and with council members over it, but to me, that was my job, was to make sure it was clean, safe, and look good. (laughs) Part of Pat's legacy is helping to build a water treatment facility in the Ravencliff, McGraws, and Saulsville areas of Wyoming County. While some abandoned mines provide a water source without the need for filtration systems, like in Elkhorn, Garwood, and eastern Wyoming, the system here in Ravencliff uses a water source that's high in iron and manganese. 
Pat's proud that through a system that he helped to build to filter contaminants, residents have clean tap water. Makes you feel pretty good. It does. It, it does, because I think if you went to the customers in this system and talked to them, they'd tell you that it's really good water. He started the system several years ago for his neighbors while he used a personal well. But Pat says his well became unreliable right around the same time that a strip mine moved in next door. That's like me trying to prove that the outfit that stripped the top of the mountain affected my well. You know, that it's just hard to fight the coal companies. You know, it, it would have been real hard for me to prove that they did it. So uh, we just waited it out. Pat says for about two years he had to use an unreliable well until his community was connected to the same plant he helped build. It seems to me like it's only the people that live in these areas like I do in the southern and the coal fields that really understand how much power the coal companies have. People out of the area don't really look at it that way. You know, it's like my dad used to tell me, it's King Coal, son. You can't fight him. I learned through him, I guess. It's, the more you complain, the less happens. Pat points out that reaching out to your water operator and asking questions about your water system isn't complaining. Just get involved in it. Just see what it does take to, to uh, provide good drinking water, safe water. It's, it's not easy. So, uh, yeah, just get involved. You know, find out who your operators are. Uh, take them a plate of cookies. <laughs> Aging infrastructure affects families' sewer systems, too. Molly Bourne takes us to Chatteroy, a town in Mingo County, West Virginia, where a group of families in one neighborhood knows this all too well. If the forecast says it's going to storm, some Chatteroy residents know their troubles are just beginning. This is a dangerous situation, and the only reason it's not worse than what it is is because of our climate. If we lived in a tropical climate and you had sewer floating through your yard, you'd get typhoid fever, you'd have all kinds of things. Megan Hatfield Montgomery, her husband, and their sons live here in this Mingo County town in southern West Virginia. After a hard rain, simple things like doing laundry and flushing the toilet can present a challenge. That's because two nearby manholes that are part of an aging wastewater system back up and overflow into the street. Sometimes it sends raw sewage, bits of toilet paper, and even sanitary napkins into the road and yards. It's usually overflowed, and there's usually uh, sewage and toilet paper. You see how high it is right now? This is right here. Montgomery is a nurse, and she says it's also cost them thousands of dollars. When they first moved in, water damage under the house caused the bathroom floor to rot, and the toilet fell through. It cost them $10,000 to remodel. My grandfather was almost 90 years old. He bought us this home because he needed me to take care of him. He wanted, he wanted that, and I wanted that for him, and I wouldn't take it back. You know, but uh, he's gone now. He died last year. But if it hadn't been for him and being in the close proximity with his house being right there, I would have never bought this home. Her next door neighbors, James Stallings and his wife, Naomi, have been dealing with it for decades. He has video of inches deep water rushing down the street. Uh, my furnace, it's for uh, human waste. Uh, all the stuff that came floating down the road went into my duct system. I can't, I can't use it now. It, it, it happens every time. Every time it does this, I have to clean that out. I'm getting too old getting under there and messing with it anymore. Last April, then-Congressman Evan Jenkins held a community meeting with residents and other officials to discuss possible solutions. A representative for Jenkins, who's now a state Supreme Court justice, didn't answer recent questions about a timeline or next steps. But a fix is not cheap.
J.B. Heflin, director of the Mingo County Public Service District, told the Williamson Daily News that Chatteroy's entire sewage system needs to be replaced. He said the system serves about 400 customers and was built more than 50 years ago, and that it would cost $6 million to replace it. Rates would likely have to go up, combined with federal loans and grants to pay for it. Good morning. My name is Anthony Blankenship. The head of the Mingo County Health Department agrees the situation is a threat to public health. But he says there's not much his tiny department can do for a system that needs so much money and so many resources. Just trying to do our best. We don't necessarily have all the answers, but you, you know, we're, we're, there are neighbors or part of our community, there are friends, so we try to do everything we can. But sometimes you just, you just, your hands are tied when it comes financially and, and, and failing systems. Samuel Barker grew up here and now owns a house in the neighborhood. Chatteroy was home and he didn't want to leave. But now he and his wife, Wendy, say they feel stuck. My daughter lived next door. She built that brand new house and she moved away. So we're renting the house right now. The reporters who worked on the Stirring the Waters project mentioned some traditional methods of helping the situation. University researchers are also getting involved. Leanne Chromedis is a research scientist at Virginia Tech. She's leading a team taking water samples at about two dozen mountain springs in several states in Appalachia. The team put up a sign at the Pool of Bethesda Mountain Spring in Mingo County, West Virginia, last summer asking people to get in touch to both test the water in their homes and figure out why they go to these springs in the first place. That's where Barbie Ann Maynard, the mother we heard from earlier in the show, gets her water, by the way. And I really hope we can protect these springs so that if people are dependent on them, they can be dependent on them and have some knowledge of the quality of the water. I don't want to take away what people depend on. Chromatis is hoping to one day work together with other nonprofits to help people get in-home access to water they can use. So it is different than electricity. It is different than cable. I mean, water is a human right. They should have their water. And graduate students from the University of Pennsylvania are looking for a solution, too. As part of a project that began last fall, a team of six students visited McDowell County to tour the water plants. On a rainy, chilly fall day, the research team and I leave from a hotel lobby in Princeton, West Virginia. It takes us about an hour to get to the Elkhorn water plant. Outside, water from an old coal mine flows swiftly down the mountain. This is the source of tap water for this district. Operators tell me it's good water, that while treated, doesn't require an intense process like reverse osmosis to get it ready for the tap. The graduate students are trying to get a handle on the context and history of the water systems in the region. So much of the the problem is tied to the context, the historical context, the geographic context. Carl Rusick is one of the students in the Master of Environmental Studies program at the University of Pennsylvania. It's hard for someone who's not from the area to kind of get their head around some of the challenges faced you know, in, all those, in all those respects without really having a chance to see the area. Carl and other graduate students listened to a local representative of the Public Service District explain the massive challenges they have in maintaining these small water systems. It was a nightmare, really. Jared Brewster explains that a lot of these systems have been in disrepair for over 50 years. And so just getting these systems up and running properly would cost millions of dollars and years of work. Those same challenges face water systems in rural communities all over the United States to some degree. But as graduate student Carl Russick notes, the problems facing coal country are worse than most. He grew up in a coal town in Pennsylvania. I think a lot of the yeah, it's a lot of the demographic challenges and a lot of the socioeconomic challenges are very similar. 
uh, to where I grew up. One of the differences is when the mines did shut down in the 50s, there was still enough economic critical mass that the communities could survive a little longer. I mean, they're hollowing out just like you know, small towns all over the country are hollowing out, but uh, it's not quite as geographically isolated as you know, parts of central Appalachia. The team is first working to identify where existing mechanisms fall short, replacing infrastructures not cheap, and sometimes paying higher bills or writing a grant in a tiny community just aren't options. You know, there are a lot of people doing some very hard work and some very good work. They're just, you know, as just the existing toolkit is not built to handle some of these problems uh, because they're just not the scale necessarily, the number of people involved, um, the number of customers to be able to support kind of you know, how these projects are funded in other parts of the country. Another graduate student working with Carl is Mavish Ilyas. She says visiting the region provides an opportunity for the students to connect some of their studies to the people it could possibly impact. And it just diversified our understanding of the problem. Like, this is a diverse issue, but at the same time, you know, we have so many opportunities. So we have the opportunity of leveraging funding, um, starting meaningful conversations with the communities, introducing technology and creating jobs. And we had this very interesting conversation with the mayor of North Fork. North Fork is a town in McDowell County that's been on a boil water advisory for years. The advisory will end when the system is replaced or there's another solution put in place. And, you know, it just showed that the local administrative bodies, they're willing to become a part of the solution. And, um, you know, they were so welcoming when they heard about our project. And, you know, they were like, just propose anything to us and we will be more than happy to consider it. And I think that was very encouraging. The goal is to come up with suggestions for community leaders in southern West Virginia. Students hope that specific solutions for this region could inspire water infrastructure solutions in other rural communities. This would serve as a baseline study. I'm not sure. I'm sure there are a lot of research papers and articles out there, but nothing has been consolidated to this level. The team is still compiling the results. It's not clear when those will be available. On this show, we heard from families in southern West Virginia and eastern Kentucky laugh as they gathered water from a mountain spring, the only way to access water for their home. I'm so inspired by these stories. The people truly are resilient but incredibly humble. They don't feel sorry for themselves, but simply figure out a way to make it work and survive. Growing up in the coalfields of southern West Virginia, we didn't drink air tap water. We had milk, juice, and pop, like RC, Dr. Pepper, and 7-Up. I'm told when I was a baby, I almost died from the water. I just remember running out of water a lot and keeping a bucket at the front of our house under a small mountain spring. My papa told us it was an old abandoned mine, I can remember red sludge would gather around the bucket when some time had passed between outages. We would use it to flush toilets and boil when we needed it to cook. Outages were common, and there really wasn't anything we could do about it. But I saw what happened when we've reported on this issue in the past. People from across the country wanted to help, and they sent water. And now the studies are igniting new hope, at least for me. It's not good enough for me to hear that it's just too expensive for people to have water that the answers are just too hard in this catch-22 situation. I understand it's not easy, but it's not impossible to find a solution. And I hope with new studies from academia, we can find an affordable, reasonable way to access water. 
so we can stop surviving and perhaps begin thriving. After all, there is no life without water. Until next week, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. Much of the content in this episode is from a collaborative reporting effort by the Lexington Herald-Leader, Charleston Gazette-Mail, and West Virginia Public Broadcasting that was coordinated by the Ground Truth Project and its new initiative, Report for America, a national service program made possible in rural Appalachia with support from the Galloway Family Foundation. Speaking of Report for America, West Virginia Public Broadcasting will be working with the project again this year. We're taking applications for a reporter based in Charleston, West Virginia, who will cover the southern part of the state, including state government. The deadline to apply is February 8th. You can find out more on our website, wvpublic.org. Music in today's show was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Blue Dot Sessions, and Ben Townsend. Roxy Todd is our producer. Molly Bourne guest produced the show this week with help from associate producer Eric Douglas. Our executive producer is Jesse Wright. He also edited the show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us online on Twitter at inAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wbpublic.org or address your letters to Inside Appalachia at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. If you'd like to listen to any part of this episode again, don't forget, you can subscribe or download all of our stories at wbpublic.org and you can find Inside Appalachia on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jessica Lilly. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.